Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, and less ukulele. In this episode, we all know that beer making is part science and part... Eh, well, this is the way the legends say I have to do it. And no area of brewing, or at least in home brewing, seems as rife with that latter attitude as mixed culture or sour brewing. To fight the lore and legends and give us a better fighting chance at making great mixed beer, the folks at Milk the Funk are bringing the science to bear. In this episode, I sit down with Dan Pixley, the maintainer of the awe-inspiring Milk the Funk wiki, about how it all started and what's been surprising to him in this whole journey. But first, a message from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association, a group of more than 40,000 individuals from more than 70 countries who share a passion for brewing and enjoying great beer. Learn more at homebrewersassociation.org. Family-owned Atlantic Brew Supply is the biggest homebrew shop in the Southeast. No gimmicks, no multinational corporate overlords, and no BS. Unique ingredients from local suppliers, including malt from neighboring Artisan Malt House Epiphany Craft Malts and award-winning recipe kits, including the Toll, Raleigh Brewing Company's GABF-winning Imperial Oatmeal Stout. Plus, we've got pro-level equipment and the best-in-cask supply equipment from sister companies ABS Commercial and Cask Supply. Malts, extracts, and more, all available by the ounce, an on-site calculator to help you craft your best brew, same-day order processing, and guaranteed two-day shipping for East Coast customers. Get 15% off your first order when you use the coupon code BREWFILES at checkout at Atlantic Brew Supply. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. Well, welcome back, and thank you for sticking with us. Remember, if you have a chance to interact with any of our sponsors, please remember to tell them that you heard about them here on the show. Otherwise, they won't know they're spending their money wisely. All right, in today's episode, I'm sitting down here with Dan. Dan, say hi to everybody, and tell them why they should know who you are. Uh, my name is Dan Pixley, and I am a moderator on Milk the Funk, the Facebook group, and I'm also the primary wiki editor, so I've probably did, I don't know, 80% of the of the wiki and I do pretty much all of the keeping it up to date. Well, and I'm going to assume that most of our listeners know Milk Funk. We've referenced Milk the Funk before on the show because you guys have a podcast in addition to the Facebook group and in addition to the wiki. I think nowadays, every time I go and I'm starting to write about anything mixed fermentation, I, I'm going to double check the wiki just to make sure I'm saying things correctly. For people who may not know, how did Milk the Funk get started? Um, yeah, good question. Um, Milk the Funk was started by uh, a guy named Devin Bell, uh, Ryan Stegall, and Brandon Jones from Yazoo Brewing Company. Um, and they uh, it was started really between Ryan and, and Devin, and they just wanted a place to talk about uh, sour beer and sour, you know, homebrewing sour beer. So uh, they created a Facebook group. And uh, back in 2013, and they just uh, started inviting friends and, and bloggers um, and uh, kind of people that put themselves out there on social media, like uh, some brewers and, and uh, advanced home brewers and such. And uh, it just grew from there. Well, it's, it's become kind of a force now. 
Yeah, um, you know, originally and back in 2014, 2015, it started to blow up as as kind of a not in membership wise, but in information wise, because um, it was primarily a group of scientists, microbiologists. Uh, advanced home brewers, commercial brewers who were passionate about sour beer. And we always felt like we were brewing a, in a niche of a niche, like craft brewing is a niche, and then sour beer brewing is, is a niche of that. And so you, we were, we always felt like we were on the outside, if you will, the brewing community. Most of the brewing community really didn't take sour beer seriously. You know, they would, a lot of, and still to this day, you know, the uh, brewers might think that, um, you know, sour brewing is, is weird and crazy and, you know, it might affect my stuff and things like that. And so, you know, most brewers uh, didn't take it very seriously until kettle souring came along. Uh, that kind of changed things. But um, so it was, a, it was a group of people that, that uh, just started learning together um, using science and objective reasoning and research. Um, and and we, we started to realize that a lot of the things that we thought we knew about sour brewing, the things that were kind of passed along, you know, hearsay things from other brewers, it was really a myth. And um, so that's what the group was about, is was uh, fact-finding, you know, the reality of, of, uh, of how sour brewing works. Well, and you bring up a good point, because, and actually tomorrow I'm giving a talk about myths for the AHA HumberCon. Uh, but you do bring a good point because one of the things that's very true is that brewing and even homebrewing and even small-scale commercial brewing is still sort of passed down by hand. It's still very much almost like an apprenticeship sort of setup, which is how you get myths that continue on forever. Yeah, um, and sour brewing was, was even worse because it's so, you know, it's all microbiolo- microbiologically based right and so it's uh there's very little science in sour brewing um there's very little science in brewing in general uh comparatively speaking to the you know the broader world of science uh the the science of of beer is is pretty small and then you take that niche of a niche sour brewing and it's even smaller it's almost non-existent i think it's fair to say that part of that's just driven by the fact that as Denny and I always joke, malted barley just wants to become beer. I mean, you can you can almost stumble across barley and end up making beer. Yeah, there's there's that too, you know. Um, but um, but at the, but at the at the end of the day, I think that there are uh, Milk the Funk was a group of, of very passionate people um, that that wanted to know the truth. And the way you get to the truth of things is you you do controlled experiments, you know, and you go you go by the data. And uh, we found a lot of just things that were, were wrong. We found things that companies were that were doing that were wrong. We found, um, you know, things that very prominent brewers would say is just not right. Do you remember an aha? Uh, do you remember an aha moment that you had about something like that? Um, probably the biggest one that I had was um, not to trust yeast companies. <laughs> <laughs> And I don't mean that – I should I should rephrase that, not to trust them blindly. In other words, um, when the diastatic yeast problem came out with left hand, that was not a surprise to me because we had already seen that in Milk the Funk. We saw that uh, Trois was not, was not Brett. It was Sack. It was misidentified. There's some rumors that maybe they knew about that beforehand and for a while, but they just never – did anything about it. Um, we found out the lactobacillus can't ferment wort, um, and there were there were commercial beers out there that were quote unquote 100% lactobacillus beers, and they weren't. There was yeast in that um, because it's not physically possible. Um, so, yeah, one of my big aha moments was that um, error error can exist anywhere where humans are involved. Absolutely. There, there's never, never been a case where human beings get it right. Uh, and I, I think the first time I've, I think the first time that I remember Milk the Funk really kind of penetrating through to my skull, which takes a little bit, was with the whole Brettois versus Sactois debate. Can you fill people in on that history? Yeah. Let me see if I can, if I can remember all that. That we, um, that, that came from Lance Shaner, uh, who is the owner of Omega Yeast Labs. Uh, he was uh, was just noticing that sac or that Brettois, quote unquote Brettois, um, that he acquired from from White Labs, that it didn't grow like Brett. It didn't produce the flavors of Brett. It it didn't seem to act like Brett at all to him. 
Um, but there's, you know, that brewing, those brewing myths where, oh, it, it acts like bread. Well, you know, when you, when you look at it, it, it really doesn't. Do you think people thought it acted like bread because of things that they were seeing? I mean, obviously, this is brewers who are saying this, not microbiologists. I think that it was just confirmation bias, pure confirmation bias, because it was sold to them as bread. And that's just the way the human mind works, you know. When you trust your source, which, you know, everybody trusts White Labs because White Labs has done so much for the brewing world, um, and it's a great company, and they made a mistake, and, um, you know, people just took them at their word. Why not, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's why well, people I mean, thought it. They have, they, they have degrees. I don't, so. <laughs> sure. Yeah, there's that. And I, I don't either. Uh, but anyway, Lance does, and and Lance um, had it uh, had had the DNA sequenced uh, through PCR, and, and they found that it was Saccharomyces cerevisiae. So he posted it in Milk the Funk, and uh, there was a lot of skepticism. People, and he he kind of just posted it as a reply to somebody else's uh, post, and and people were like, at the time. In Milk the Funk, you read every single post, and you read everything everything that everybody wrote. Um, that's that's the kind of group that it was at, at the time. It's not like that anymore. But um, I couldn't even imagine trying. Yeah, it was five to ten posts a day, and and the information that was getting posted. People didn't post just you know comments. They didn't post a comment to comment. They posted something that was going to be relevant or or productive to the conversation back then. So it was worth your time to read everything. Um, and that's why I, I try to link a lot of those really good threads on, on our wiki. There's a Milk the Funk Highlights page that has a lot of the, the great uh, conversations that we've had. So, yeah, Lance posted uh, – by the way, that's it's actually not Brett at all. And, and then somebody was like, well, what are you talking about? And so he's like, well, we you know we, we sequence it, and it's it's uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Um, and uh, there was a lot of skepticism. There were a lot of microbiologists uh, that were like – you know, are, is there something wrong with your? Uh, was there something wrong with with the measurements? You know, or with the you know, because I'm not a microbiologist, but I know that uh, you can mess up DNA sequencing. There are problems with PCRing depending on the technology that you're using. Um, so you know, there was a lot of skepticism, and other microbiologists decided to do the same thing. Um, I know Dr. Matt Humbard, who's my co-host on our on our Milk the Funk podcast, and Matt's also been on the show. Yeah, yeah, incredibly smart and educated person. Um, he has two PhDs, one in microbiology and one in cellular biology. And he looked at the data, the the DNA data, and he said, yeah, it's, it's Saccharomyces cerevisiae, according to this data. Um, and uh, and then we started to, to discuss the things like um, it doesn't develop a pellicle, even though there's kind of rumors that it does. I've never seen evidence of it. Um I've seen one controlled experiment with it that Lance did in an Erlenmeyer flask, and it, after a couple of months, kind of developed a light film on the top, but it never developed a pellicle. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, I'd have to go look it up on the wiki. I don't think it's even uh, phenolic. It doesn't. It doesn't even. I don't think it produces uh, phenols. Um, maybe I should check that before we put that in the podcast because I don't. I really don't want to. Yeah. No, that's correct. Yeah, Sactois does not produce um, phenols. And all Brett species, except for one that was recently found, produce phenols. And, um, yeah. And it also doesn't have the same growth pattern as, as Brett, as far as I know. It has the, the, the growth pattern of uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae. It is a slow fermenter. Um, but, you know, most. Saccharomyces cerevisiae strains are slow fermenters. Not all of them are like brewing strains where they just rip through the maltose, you know, and the maltose trios. trios. That's a pretty rare thing. Well, and that's kind of cool that, I mean, you guys could use some science and actually have that analysis done to be able to go, wait a second, and, and figure that out. Because like, I, I do think there's a lot of a lot of stuff in the brewing world where it's just done by, well, I mean, some of it's by... Well, if you get fancy, some of it's probably done by morphology, but in reality, I think a lot of it's just done by, hey, what sort of characteristics does this thing show? But it, it, given what you just said about the differences between it and Brett, uh, it's really interesting that it got mis misclassified that way. Yeah, uh, I, I think that that kind of stuff happens all the time, and unless you have the, the science to uh, to verify things, you, you really don't know what, what the truth of it is. Um, and that, and that's that's kind of the, the theme that we try to go through 
for on Milk the Funk and especially on the wiki. Well, and I think it's interesting to me because so most of the beer science over the last century or so has all been focused around massive lager breweries, right? You know, trying to figure out how to how to make their beers cleaner, control control off flavors, and how to how to turn them out faster so that they can generate more profit, less time in tank, right? And then craft brewing comes along, and I don't think craft brewing has far less science attached to it. And now with you guys doing this work and the interest that's happening, particularly around the microbiology, because sour, wild, funky beers, whatever term you want to use for them, are very complex microbiological. I, I almost think that we've got this sort of gap where we have all this knowledge on the lager side. Now you guys are building up all this knowledge on the on the weird side, and we've got this trough in the middle. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting thing that you say that. Um, that I've, so in the craft beer side of things, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of studies on hops. So, you know, the science is, is always geared by the industry. Not always, but it's, it's geared by the industry. Um, so whatever the industry is interested in, that's where the science is going to lean. And since sour beer is so small, you know, it doesn't really lean that way. And since hops are is the most important thing in, in craft beer, that's where the science leans, right? So... Well, that's why you got like Shellhammer making all those, doing all those great studies showing different uh, hop components and characteristics. Right. There are a lot of studies on the middle ground side of things that you're talking about, um, but you know, there's there's a bit of gatekeeping out there. I, I feel um, so. If you want to get information, if you want to get access to that information, you usually got to pay for it. Um, which I, I think it's it's worth it. That's how the world works normally. Uh, the wiki is an anomaly um, in that I do it for fun and I don't get paid for it. Um, normally, information costs money. You know, <laughs> it's it's not free. Um, so you got to join like the Master Brewers Association of America um, or the ASPC, and then you'll get access to um, some of the more scientific. Uh, achievements in, in the broader scope of craft brewing. And by the way, I would recommend to listeners, if you are the nerdy sort of person who wants to actually read scientific papers about brewing, uh, I mean, Master Brewers Association is not a cheap membership, but if you're going to read a lot, I think it's worth it. Yeah, I think it's worth it. So you, you mentioned that you that you edit this wiki as a volunteer thing. How did the wiki get started? Because I mean, I think one of the things that's fascinating me is like there are all these Facebook groups out there where people talk all the all this sort of different brewing stuff, but it's so ephemeral that it just kind of disappears. And I'd be worried that the same thing would happen with Milk the Funk if you did get if you didn't have the wiki available. Yeah, no, that's a great observation. Um, you know, when we were going through that phase in 2014, 2015, where people were just dumping out loads and loads of information, and it wasn't just scientific information. It was also process information. We had commercial brewers sharing a lot of secrets. Uh, Mitch Ermitinger from um, Speciation Ales basically set up his entire brewery uh not based entirely on Milk the Funk, but a lot of it came from Milk the Funk, and he shared a lot of information on Milk the Funk. And he, um, you know, he was like, "This is how I can my sour beer, you know, my mixed fermentation sour beer." And at the time, that was like, you know, who, who the heck's doing that? And that's so, you know, you had commercial brewers sharing secrets, uh, scientists answering technical questions, uh, things like that. And and um, Brian Stegall, one of the founders, he he recognized that you know this is something special actually that's happening and milk the funk and and we don't want it to be so ephemeral as you put it um so he created the wiki and then he invited me to be an editor on it and when i saw it i'm I'm like well yeah i'll do it and i think and i thought to myself if somebody just kickstarts it and puts in some effort then maybe it can become a collective thing and at first it was uh dave jansen from whores category blog um he he did a lot of uh initial editing um he wrote like the the lambic page and the spontaneous fermentation page at first. Um, some of the mixed fermentation stuff, I think he wrote. Um, and uh, then later, Justin Amaral from Maniacal Yeast, he uh, got involved and kind of did a little bit. And I mean, I've done the majority of it, but uh, yeah, that's 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 how how it happened. Is that we felt that that the information that was being shared uh, was so valuable that we we didn't want it to get lost out in the the ether of the internet. 
People say that the internet never forgets, but the problem is that you have to know what you're searching for in order to find it. Um, mm-hmm. And and it's interesting that you said that the wiki started off communal and it now sounds like, I mean, you're the primary editor on it. I find that happens a lot with writing projects. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, if, if there comes a time where I can't do it or I don't want to do it, then it, it might uh, cease to be a, a, the living document that it is now, which is, you know, would be unfortunate. And I, I continue to do it because I'm, I'm still passionate about it um, and I don't want to get left behind. Um, because if you stop editing it for a year, well, that's a year's worth of information now that you got to go back and check. And some of it might be relevant. Some of it might be out of date already, you know, so it's, uh, you can't let it slip. Well, and I was going to say with how much information you guys are putting out there and putting into this document, I mean, I've gone read stuff on there and come back four months later and found, Oh wait, no, now that's being contradicted by something else. So yeah, I can only imagine if you walked away from it, it would be really hard to, to catch it back up. So how how much time do you actually spend per week reading articles and writing things for the for the wiki? Um, you know, I, I used to spend a lot of time doing it. It's it's kind of slowed down for me uh, recently this year, um, especially uh, with the the whole coronavirus thing. It's it's kind of somehow sapped my motivation for beer in mm-hmm. general. Um, beer seems less important in the world right now. Um, even though in some ways, you know, that's, that's not a very positive way to put things. That's just my personal, you know, issues coming out, I guess. Well, and you got Matt uh, off there fighting the good fight against the coronavirus too. So yeah, I can understand. Yeah. He's, he's been very busy. He's involved <laughs> directly. So we've kind of lost him, um, as far as, uh, doing the podcast temporarily, um, cause he's been working seven days a week uh, and many hours per day. Thankfully we have smart people to be able to do that. But the other thing I think is fascinating about both the wiki and the group is you guys have a very close relationship with a number of smaller yeast companies. Well, I mean, okay. Omega is not a small yeast company, but in the grand scheme of things, but you, you mentioned maniacal, uh, you guys have a real close relationship with escarpment labs up in Canada, uh, bootleg biology uh, there in Tennessee. It's really interesting to see. I I almost wonder how much of a, like how the feedback worked there. Like if you guys had these microbiologists coming in and talking and then that helped drive the creation of these companies because it drove interest or, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an interesting thing. It is an interesting thing. Um, and the East Bay is another one, Nick and Pelletieri, yep. Um who was in San Francisco and I was up in, Portland, yeah, um, yeah. Those guys, um, some of them kind of created their companies around the same time, um, but those guys were always really interested in sour beer. Some of the other yeast companies, they're not that interested in it. At least that's the feeling that I get. I think things may have changed, especially on the kettle souring side of things. You have to have a lactobacillus plantarum, you know, culture. Kettle souring is kind of a different ball of wax here community wise but i was gonna say i remember there were community wars over you know kettle souring and, oh, lot, yeah. and, and i mean there's still a lot of wars over the ideas is a kettle sour a true sour or does it have to be you know a, a long-term sour yeah yeah we can we can talk about kettle souring but uh um i wanted to fit you know finish the, yeah. the thought on the, the microbiologists from the yeast labs um you know so these guys were small labs and um, especially lance shaner and richard priest from escarpment and, and last year from Omega, um, you know, they, they saw things that the brewers were misunderstanding things like Britannomyces and how it worked, and it made their jobs harder to sell their, their products. So they wanted to educate brewers so the brewers knew what to expect, right? Mm-hmm. So, for example, uh, Britannomyces um, anomalous, most of those strains don't ferment maltose, which means when you get quote-unquote Clausenii or anomalous whatever you want to call it, from another lab and it ferments your wort 100% or 80%, whatever the attenuation percentage is, uh, you know that it's, it's it, there's a good chance that there might be uh, another yeast in there. For the listeners, uh, I got taken to task by that for uh, something I wrote recently by Richard. <laughs> hmm. yeah, uh, Richard is a stickler on, uh, on nomenclature. Yeah. He, he got, he got on me too on the wiki. He said, uh, Stop calling things Sack and Brett, because uh, that's not what they are. That's not what they're called. <laughs> they're called Saccharomyces and Britannomyces um, on the wiki, you know. So 
and I, and I, I respect where he's coming from there. If, if you want to, you know, sound authoritative, um, then you, you should use the correct, you know, nomenclature. Um, so I respect that. And and I appreciate his, his uh, feedback. In fact, Richard has, um, behind the scenes guided me a lot on the wiki. Um, so one of the things, since I'm not a microbiologist, if I read something that I don't understand, I'll go to Richard usually first. Um, and, and Richard will help me to, to kind of piece together the information from a particular study where, you know, I can ask him, what do you think is important here? And, or what does this mean? You know, and he'll, he'll guide me there. So Richard throughout the years has uh, played a huge role in the wiki. He just doesn't get, um, enough credit, unfortunately, because he doesn't actually write anything, <laughs> but, um, he, uh, yeah, he's been huge for Milk the Funk, him and Lance Shaner, um, and Nick and Jeff Mello, uh, Nick and Pelletieri. So, um, yeah, the, you know, the yeast labs, they're, they're, they want people to, to understand the microbiology so that brewers can use the cultures properly. And Milk the Funk provided that medium where they can go on there and educate people, where they can educate a segment, and then that segment can educate everybody else. Um, and so when I tag somebody like Nick or Richard or Lance, they'll usually res- respond um, because they know that I don't know the answer, which means uh, I, I need to tell tell people what the answer is. You know? Well, it makes perfect sense. If people don't know how to use a particular tool, then it's not something that they can really use out of their toolbox, right? Right. Yeah, it's, it's a win-win for everybody. And they get their name out there. People love them because, hey, look, the, the owner of Blue Lake Biology just answered my question. You know, that's, that's a great thing to see. Um, you don't see that from some of the, you know, the two big labs. Well, and I mean, right. Speaking of bootleg, right now, as we're speaking, I am brewing up a, a a sample or just one of my test batches of, uh, well, it's really my Saison wort, but I'm using it to test quark strains and I'm putting, uh, the bootleg Oslo through it. Going to test it in a couple different ways to, to be able to write about it. Nice. Yeah. It's always good. And well, so let's, let's actually jump onto those two things because I think the two big trends that have really pushed a lot of this stuff forward. One, one of which we've already mentioned, which was the, the kettle sours. I mean, that falls in line with a lot of sort of the traditional sour beer, wild beer, weird beer, uh, mixed culture beer. Um, so describe what happened around the, the time of kettle souring. Like, what, what do you think like the big myths are with kettle souring and where did milk the funk help? Kettle souring, like other things, had some misguided information, I think, or maybe some information that wasn't misguided but was specific to brewers who weren't fully sharing exactly what they were doing or were in situations where they had maybe a, a culture of lactobacillus that you know was buccaneering, um, but for whatever reason, it's it's actually performing much better for them than it is for everybody else. Uh, I don't know why that would be, but... So, um, you know, and people were using grains um, to, to do a lot of calcium. People still do that because, I don't know, I, I guess it's... It, it's cheap. <laughs> it's cheap. Yeah, that's true. Um, but it's kind of a gamble. There's, it's a high-risk um, method. And I think it was in Milk the Funk. Milk the Funk was the first place I saw people really playing around with, like, Good Belly and other sources of probiotics. No, uh, yeah, Good Belly, from what I can remember, was really something that Devin Bell started messing with. Um, I, there might be other people that were before him, but I, rem, I remember it being actually Devin Bell that kind of came up with that um, because he, he noticed that before that, uh, Omega came out with their uh, Lactobacillus plantarum culture, uh, the OYL605, and fantastic. That changed everything in kettle souring because now you could kettle sour at pretty much any temperature within two days. And if you're at the higher temperature, 90 degrees, uh, within 24, sometimes even 12 hours, like that stuff. Uh, when I, when a professional brewer asked me what, what lactobacillus should I use, I'm like, spend the money on uh, the Omega culture because you know that it's going to be pure. It's designed exactly to do what you want it to do. Well, and I think if what if you go to like why you used to work labs, I mean, and you act for, and you ask for lactobacillus, what you're getting debarkii usually? Yeah, and debarkii is a terrible lactobacillus for kettle souring because it's so slow. It's it's the worst choice. Well, and I mean, I think they had it because it was the the quote unquote traditional lambic lactobacillus. Right. right. It's not meant for kettle souring. Yeah. Um, you know, kettle, kettle souring in in America is probably only. I mean. It goes back um, 
probably seven, eight years, but it didn't pop get real popular until about five years ago. And so White Labs kind of had to play catch up. Omega Yeast was really on top of it. And so they came out with the Plantarum culture, and then Devin Bell realized that Good Belly is the same species of lactobacillus. He's like, well, let me try it. And it works pretty much uh, just as well. And it's available in your grocery store. Yeah, and it's available in your grocery store. The one thing that isn't so great about Good Belly is that it's not designed to for, for brewing. It's designed to be consumed as a probiotic. Um, so it's not very shelf-stable. Um, and I, I'm sure that the, the QC from Good Belly is is – is probably really good because you can't have you know yeast in a Good Belly product sitting on the shelf that's going to start to ferment. You can't have that. But um, I don't know if it's going to be as quite as strict and stringent as something like Omega Yeast Labs, where you're putting it in work for 24 hours and it's got free reign to the sugars. You want that culture to be as pure as possible. So that's why I tell commercial brewers, you know, go with go with the commercial stuff if you're if your bottom dollar depends on it. Good Belly is a good alternative, a good cheap alternative for home brewers for sure, and some of the smaller craft brewers too use it. Yeah, it's all about the risk. How much, how much money are you willing to lose if something goes sideways? As we've alluded to earlier, as we talked about earlier, there were all those sort of wars, and I think you still see them about kettle sours versus traditional sours versus you know, particularly around the cost. Because I think we saw some uh, some breweries starting to sell their kettle sours for the same sort of prices that people were pushing for things that took years to come together. Yeah, um, there were accusations of that, and apparently it happened. I didn't see a lot of examples. People didn't want to name names. Um, there was kind of uh, there was I guess a CBC conference in 2016 where they that was the, the message of the of the of the panel. You know, I think it was kind of an unfair thing to do and i think that they realized that afterwards and uh jay goodwin trying to try to correct that and try to massage that a little bit because you know mo- most people aren't doing that most people are just making quote-unquote blunderbice or quote-unquote goza and they're they're not gouging customers you know they're not putting it in a cork and cage and calling it a flanders red you know there might have been a couple of people out there doing that but for the most part that wasn't happening so typically, typically i think the industry works Above board. Yeah, yeah, in general. Um, I think really what it is is it's it's kind of the, the dumbing down of of something that's supposed to be complex and and higher price. And, uh, you know, because mixed fermentation sour beer is, is um, inspired by Lambic Brewing and Flanders Red Brewing, which are the two most complicated beers to make. And they're also the most complex beers that exist. So when you take that product and then you, you dumb it down, it's just a, it's indicative of other things in the world where you, you make something cheap and faster um, for the sake of, of money and uh, you get a less complex product and um, it just kind of dumbs down the entire genre of, of beer. And that's really the problem that the mixed fermentation brewers have with it. It's not so much, you know, the gouging thing that was kind of a, I think that was a little bit misguided. What it really is is a dumbing down of, of something that is supposed to be complex and and more expensive and higher end. Well, yeah, and it's supposed to be something more more savored with more. I don't want to say culture behind it, but yeah, you know, yeah, something that's supposed to be more thoughtful, as opposed to some of the things I think we saw were. Hopefully, this didn't get as bad as I was worried it was going to be, but where you had people trying to drive just like they drive as. As many IBUs as you can possibly put in there. There were uh, there were a couple of people out there who were making. We have the sourest beer available. Where they're, they're just trying to push the the acid levels to extreme levels. And fortunately, I don't think we saw as much of that as we saw as like the IBU wars. Because yeah, um, you know, people talk about that a lot, and and I have some thoughts about that. I, I know Cascade was kind of the the driver for that, but. Um, you know, I think some of it was also people just not really knowing how to control their cultures very well, um, and people weren't putting hops in their beers because they wanted it to be sour, and then it would end up too sour, and that was just kind of the acceptable way of things for a while until um, until people people realize that you can actually control this this part of sour brewing. And again, I think to the earlier conversation that we had, I think the thing that's been great about Milk the Funk is it has been putting information and instructions and guidance out there to take something that had almost sort of mystical slash religious slash 
you know, just a mystery type of aspect to how you make these mixed culture beers. And now there's actual, you know, actual like real science and, and real guidance to it. So that's kind of nice to see. So hopefully we don't end up with as much of that. Right. Yeah. And uh, we, we try not to contribute to it. So, you know, the content that goes onto the wiki, it's um, a lot of it. Some of it is from within the group, and then some of it is not within the group. Some of it is external. The external stuff, I try to take, you know, scientific studies, and I'll review those and kind of do like a summary of, of that scientific study if it's relevant to sour brewing. But, you know, there's so little of that that, you know, you can't rely on that 100%. Like, you know, how much cherries should I put in the sour beer? Well, there's no science to tell you that. Um, so, so sometimes you have to go with brewing anecdotes um, and personal experiences, and hopefully the people that are telling you that know what they're talking about. And so, you know, it depends on what the subject is. Uh, I'll include it on the wiki if if there's some if it's like a controlled experiment. Hey, you know, it's a controlled experiment. That's that's better than nothing. Beggars can't be choosers when it comes to uh, to information. So, but if it's an anecdote like, oh, I put this bread in this beer and then I taste it like this, well, you know, God knows if that was it was that the bread or was it some other variable i don't know so you know i'm not going to bother with that you know so it's just kind of trying to be as objective as as possible depending on the subject Um, like i said beggars can be choosers so sometimes you have to include anecdotes when there's nothing else to include like for tetrahydropyridine or pellicles or something like that you know there's basically no information out there for pellicles there's no scientific studies no garage science nothing um, all you have is secondary information from um, sherry or vinegar production. You know that's the best we got scientifically. And if that's the case, then that's the way I'll try to present it on the wiki too. Just say, hey, this is the state of what we know. It could be this, but some brewers think that. Some people think this, but we don't actually know. You know. So. Well, I think that's fine as long as you're calling out calling out your sources, right? Because I I do think. There's a tendency amongst some homebrewers and some brewers to treat things as, you know, it goes back to the Sactois, Brettois debate, right? You know, I got it from this source, so therefore I must trust it. And so I think as long as you're calling out like, hey, you know, this is a little bit on more shaky ground. I think that's actually helpful. And it may, who knows, maybe it'll drive people to find out the actual answer. Yeah, uh, that's why I I include all the references. Um, You know, everything that's written on there should have a reference. Um, and it's, it's kind of funny in Milk the Funk sometimes once in a while we'll get somebody posed a question that's answered on the wiki and they'll say, oh, I read the wiki, but I want to hear the answer here. It's like they don't trust the wiki, you know, because there's this whole um, broader issue of, of trusting sources and things like that. And they would rather trust Joe Schmo to tell them their opinion for some reason. We, we tried to, to present as objective as possible a, a source of, you know, a source of information. And then you can go and you can check the reference and you can decide for yourself whether you trust that reference or not. Maybe email Richard to help understand as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and again, I, I think one of the things that's fascinating is all of these guys who are you know running these little labs have been very, very open and have been uh, very accepting of questions. That's very nice. Even when it's not in their interest sometimes, um, like the Kavaik uh, pitching rate issue, that's that's not a very good uh, business model. That organism is, is not good for yeast businesses. Um, but they're, they're open to it, and they're open to dis- discussing it, and they're honest about it, at least the people that we talk to. To and, and melt the funk. So I'm very grateful for that. Brings us around to the to the other piece, which is the other transformation that's happened recently. I mean, so yeah, five six years ago we started talking about kettle sours earnestly, and now thanks to uh, Lars, uh, everybody's got a quake on the brain. Yeah, Kavik. Um, you know, if it wasn't for Milk the Funk, Kavik would not be as popular as it is. Both Lars Garshell and Richard Priest have said that. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, we had been following Lars's blog uh, because when you read Lars's blog back in 2014, you know, 2013, 2015, um, my mind was just completely blown. I was like, first, you know, sour brewing kind of breaks all the rules. And then Lars shows you that what you thought about history, like not all beer was sour. Most of it wasn't sour, probably, um, you know, things like that just blows your mind. People were drying yeast, you know. Their process was always to use juniper. Like, who thought it was juniper? <laughs> and not juniper berries, juniper branches. You know, so we, we were always big fans of Lars's content. And finally, one day I went on to his blog and I commented on his Kvike 
post. I'm, I said, uh, hey, would you come join Milk the Funk? We could, you know, come talk to us. And a week later, he uh, he posted and said, hey, I have some farmhouse cheese. Um, how would I go about um, figuring out what they are? And that sparked the relationship between Lars and Richard, which produced the scientific paper, the DNA sequencing, the whole genome sequencing of a bunch of kabiotic strains. Um, and also uh, Dwayne Schaff, um, connected with some other Norwegians, uh, William, a guy named William Holden, uh, who created uh, the Cornell Festival in, I think it's Hornendal, uh, which is a festival for farm Norwegian farmhouse brewers. Um, and Lars is now uh, managing that because William passed away. Uh, but William collected a bunch of kabayak, and he traded those um, with other people, including, I think, Dwayne Schaff. Uh, there's another Norwegian guy, uh, Svein. I can't pronounce Svein's last name. Sorry, Svein. Um, so we had all this trading of Kavayak happening, and, and then it started being traded within Milk the Funk or outside of Milk the Funk too, um, mostly by Dwayne Schaff. And then it kind of got into Justin Amaral's hands, and Justin um, you know, produces a lot of it through his yeast lab. He was also trading it earlier on. Um, so so Kavayak, you know, Omega Yeast Labs made the first – isolated culture which is hothead and they got that through connections on milk funk if it wasn't for milk funk then the kvike wouldn't be where it is today well and i'm kind of amazed because i've got at least two breweries here in la both of whom have been on the show before who they're producing an insane number of their beers with uh, kvike and uh, playing around with all the different sorts of varieties and seeing what they like so to me it's interesting that yeah I I really do think the first time I remember hearing about Quike outside of Lars's blog was on Milk the Funk. And now really in about what do you say about the past 2 years it's really kind of blown up. Yeah. Yeah, when when a company like White Labs starts jumping on it then you know that it's it's starting to inch towards the mainstream. Um and uh yeah, that's that's definitely what happened because um when you do the work to isolate some of the cultures or just uh, take somebody else's isolated culture, which is completely completely legal and uh, pretty regular practice in the yeast business, um, <laughs> the yeast business can be a little bit uh, – Paradical. Yeah. <laughs> you know, when you get those isolated cultures and, and you have all these – you have all the best components that you could want as a brewer. You know, it flocculates, it ferments in two days. Um, it tastes great. It doesn't produce fusel alcohols in that hot fermentation. Um, you know, you, you have a, you have a game changer on your hands. Um, but like I said, you know, there, there's a, a catch 22 to this on the business side of things. And that is that you don't need much of a cell count when it comes to Gavike. Now, some of the yeast labs will tell you differently, but, um, I, I've seen some things that I'm, uh, I'm not going to re- repeat too much because out of the respect of privacy of, of these people that have shared this information with me, but uh, you don't need a lot of, of Kavayak to, uh, to ferment large amounts of beer. Who, who knows that, that the next revolution of homebrewing was hiding out in the, in the valleys of uh, Norway. Yeah. And, and in some ways it's, it's a beautiful thing, but it's also a little bit, um, disappointing to me on some level because and, and well Lars did come out with his new book um, the farmhouse book um, and and that's kind of opened people's eyes that you know people that didn't realize that his blog existed but Kavayak has really um, put the rest of the Norwegian farmhouse brewing in its in its shadow which is a little bit disappointing because that is really the most interesting thing that, that came out of um, Lars's research is that there's these farmhouse brewers, they're basically, um, and I don't mean this derogatory, but um, kind of rednecks that live out in the middle of nowhere in Norway, and they've been brewing beer the same way that their forefathers have been doing it, and they don't know any better. That's just what they do, and they don't think it's anything special. Um, They just do it. and it's it's living history. It's uh, you know Lars's work is is basically amateur anthropology. Yeah, I think he he usually refers to himself as like an ethnographer as opposed to a brewer. Yeah, but and the- he doesn't consider himself a historian or an anthropologist because he doesn't you know he, he it's not his his actual expertise. But yeah, I kind I kind of think of him as the uh, Alan Lomax of Norwegian brewing. Yeah, yeah, he's 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 like me. He's an amateur. Uh, <laughs> 
uh, historian or, or ethnographer. Yeah. Um, but for all intents and purposes, he, he is the, uh, the authority on, on the matter. He's done more work and research on it than anybody else in the world. So, um, that, that does make him a, an expert on it. And of course now, so people can go to the milk funk wiki and go and grab up all this information and, you know, hopefully also be able to join the group, uh, and be prepared to be overwhelmed. Cause yeah. I mean, as, as we were talking about earlier, like I remember, I mean, even when I joined Milk the Funk, because I wasn't there in the early days, but when I joined the group, I mean, there were a fair number of posts per day, but it wasn't anything like the torrent that it is now, where I couldn't imagine trying to read everything per day. Yeah. Um, as far as the posts go these days, um, most of it is like kind of new brewers trying to figure out how to do a kettle sour or or just – you know, understand Britannomyces for the first time. You know, everybody has to start somewhere. It, we had to make a decision when we started to blow up, you know, in, in, at HomebrewCon or NHC at the time in San Diego, every single presentation that had anything to do with sour beer shouted out Milk the Funk. And there was four or five of them. And if you didn't shout out Milk the Funk, then you, you, were, you weren't up to date on your information. Um, and then Jay Goodwin shouted us out on the Sour Hour podcast. Um, and then it just started to blow up after that. And, and we had to make a decision. Um, you know, were we going to be some sort of gatekeeping elite uh, group where you have to pass a test to get in? Or are we going to try to educate everybody as much as we can about sour beer? And one of the things that the sour brewers complain about the most is the lack of education. So, you know, we were like, well, we can't make everybody happy, so we're, we're just going to embrace everybody, and we're going to try to raise the general level of knowledge of everybody. That, that's and that's become the goal now. Um, you still do have those science discussions and those more advanced topics and commercial brewing topics here and there, uh, but most of the most of the posts now are, are you know kind of beginner questions and stuff. And, and we just made the decision to go ahead and, and embrace that for better or for worse. And there were some old. Uh, members that didn't like that and have you know kind of dropped off the map and stuff like that but uh you know that's that's life i am universally in favor of more education for everybody i mean yes sometimes answering the same questions over and over again is not as much fun but it's better to bring more people into the fold yeah it's it's better um it's better for the industry as a whole um, like I said, uh, there's a guy named, uh, Jeff Porn, and that's, that's his actual name. Um, he's, uh, the owner of Adam Brewing Company in, uh, he was in Colorado. He, he just moved to the Northeast somewhere. Um, and him and a bunch of brewers, like all the big names, you know, Jay Goodwin, Lauren Limbach, all the, all the, the big wigs in the sour, in the sour brewing industry, they formed this, um, this organization. Uh, I can't even remember what it's called off the top of my head. And it, it was a, the goal was to to educate people. Well, you know, they, they didn't do anything. And I, I'm not being critical. I'm just saying that, you know, it, it takes a lot of effort and it takes and it's, it takes a lot of patience to, to educate people that don't know anything about this stuff. And I think that uh, Milk the Funk and American Sour Beers, the book by Michael Tonsmeyer, um, has, has very much done, done more for anything, done more for education than, than anybody else has. I think – there has been a great impact because I'm seeing more diverse and better quality mixed culture beers than I think we ever did before all this education started to go out there. I mean, I'm still seeing plenty of less than stellar examples, but that's fine. That's the brewing industry. Um, but I, I, I can definitely say, I think the quality has gotten uh, increasingly better because again, people have access to that information. So that's great. Yeah. Um, and, and in homebrewing as well, you know, contests uh, that I've been judging, you know, there's always stinkers. There's always going to be stinkers uh, because people are, are just, you know, everybody's at a different level. Some people are at an, at an entry level. Um, but you get a lot better beers and contests now on the homebrew scale as well um, because people just didn't understand oxygen, something as simple as oxygen. What is the impact of that on sour beer? Well, it completely ruins it. That's what it does. Um, and so people started to come up with better ways of managing their, their aging process. Oh yeah. Cause it used to just be, people would be like, Oh, it's just a sour beer. Go throw it in the corner. It's fine. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's not like that. It, you know, you have to take sour beer as seriously as you take your Pilsner. Um, 
it's it's just as complex and it deserves just as much attention as uh, you know as your loggers do. So don't don't be disrespectful to your own beer. You're probably going to make something that's not that great. Put some effort into it, and the information is out there where you can you can make something that's you know as good as a commercial product. There we go. And I think that's a I think that's a good note to leave this discussion on because I think we could probably sit here and talk for hours and hours and hours about this stuff. Go ahead and uh, tell people where they can find all the various uh, end products of Milk the Funk, the group, and the wiki and the podcast. Yeah, if you go to www.milkthefunk.com, uh, you'll see links to uh, the wiki, the Facebook group. Uh, those are the two main things, and then the podcast. I'd say those are the three main outlets. Uh, that you that you want to take a look at. Um, if you're not on Facebook, um, you can I don't know. I guess create a, a fake account. Facebook does flag fa- fake accounts, and you know there are issues with with Facebook, but um, that people have. But uh, um, yeah, the wiki and the podcast uh, as alternatives to that. Um, but a lot of information is still in the group on on the Facebook group so some of that information you do have to join Facebook and then join the group and when you join the group please answer the the uh the question <laughs> got to keep the the spaminators out of the group Dan thank you for taking the time I know this is a, a sort of a strange time but I also really do have to say I know the wiki is a lot of work I know that moderating that group is a lot of work but I think the work of the group and of the wiki have done wonders for, uh, for sour beer or mixed cultured brewing. So uh, I would, uh, I would say, keep it up, man. Love it. Thanks. Yeah. I, I forgot to say that I'm a big fan of yours and any con and the work that you guys do in this podcast. I listen to all the podcasts. Um, so it's been an honor to be on your show. Thank you. Thank you. And I hope you have a great day. Thank you everyone for joining us on another episode of the brew files. We hope that you enjoyed this look at the power of the sour science the breakdown of botanomyces, and why you should stop fearing the funk. Go look for the efforts of the Milk the Funk group at Facebook, milkthefunk.com, and of course their podcast available wherever you can subscribe to podcasts. Remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brewers, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at expbrewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, click the AHA, Amazon Brewers, Friends, or BIO links on the website, and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is still being determined. We need your feedback. We'd like to find a good group that supports brewery workers or restaurant workers during this time when, well, a lot of people are just not in business in the same way they should be. Until next time, remember the brew is out there. And we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, publisher of historical brewing techniques, the lost art of farmhouse brewing. Purchase your copy of historical brewing techniques at brewerspublications.com. Brewers Publications.